Hey friends, this is Mike from the future, just here to say that I apologize ahead of time for the quality of the audio that goes on in this episode. For some reason, in the middle of my move, my audio just absolutely failed uh, for this episode. So my apologies, and I hope that it continues to just get better and better. Thank you all for sticking with it. I also wanted to add a trigger warning for this episode. We talk very explicitly about the fact that Sarah is engaged in a non-consensual relationship with Abimelech in this story, and we call it out as rape. And so if you're not ready to have that conversation, feel free to give this one a skip and come back to us next time. The following podcast is banned in the state of Florida for talking about a dangerous leftist book, The Bible. Like The Bible, this podcast contains frank discussions on sensitive topics, including sex, violence, and cursing. Please proceed with caution. The riches of the wealthy are a strong city, and like a high wall in their imagination. But pride comes before disaster, and humility comes before respect. This is the word in black and red. And welcome to The Word in Black and Red, where we read the Bible from a leftist and liberationist perspective to elucidate the way people of faith and their comrades can understand the Bible as a source of healing, love, and liberation for all people. I am your host, Michael Belong, the wise old Lama MD, joined today by the wonderful Pastor Don and Elle. Now, it has been a, a little while since we've had Don on the episode, so Don, would you tell the folks at home how they can connect with you and get involved in what your church is doing? Hi, everybody. For longtime listeners, I'm the crazy one. Uh, (laughs) My name is Pastor Don. I am the pastor of Unfinished Community, which is, quote, the weirdest damn church ever, unquote. Um, What we are is we're a a hybrid online slash in-person church that started on a Discord server and now lives in Japan. I'm sure Micah will be kind enough to provide all the relevant links below. Unfinished.love is the website if you want to go hunting it down based on what you hear and don't have ADD like most of my family. Who would forget this the minute I said anything? Our specialty as a community is we focus on healing people who've been basically gotten the crap kicked out of them by the evangelical right in America and adjacent countries. So, you know, if that's you, hit me up. We'd love to, to communicate with you. We do a lot of online stuff, too. We have our own video and pod series and stuff like that, which I'm not going to cross promote too much here because then it might feel like this whole thing is an ad for my stuff. Uh, <laughs> But no, seriously, I already dropped the website. You can come check us out there. In the meantime, I'm glad to be here. Mike is a fun person to rant with, and I am going to be the one who is making crazy, insane, irreverent, and wildly theologically accurate yet absurd theological commentary. So (laughs) I'm looking forward to it. It's going to be a riot. Yes. And Al, what are you up to? What do you want to plug for folks? Join our Patreon, please. There we go. (laughs) Elle is one of the uh, wonderful folks alongside Spencer, who you hear often, who have come on as our additional editors. And Elle is going to be hopefully uh, learning how to develop a podcast so that she can roll out her own podcast that um, I'm going to plug for you a million times when it's ready to be rolled out. Really exciting stuff that's happening here. 
Also, I do need to plug my church, uh, the Llama Pack. It is a church for the folks who are left on the outside. So queer folks, leftists, people who don't believe the conventional things are very welcome in the Llama Pack. We joke that we are the people who were left out of the sheepfold, and that's who belongs with us. And so I don't talk about the Llama Pack often enough, but this podcast is a ministry of that organization. Um, And so if you are looking for uh, good leftist discussion on Bible studies, come join this Discord, but don't miss out on the Llama Pack, where we're doing a little bit more traditional churchy stuff with a uh, what will soon be upcoming um, is a monthly worship service that you can contribute to with your songs and your poetry and your dance and however the Spirit leads you to be involved. All of that is to say that find a community that loves you the way that God loves you. I don't care uh, who it's with, as long as you feel loved there, that is what is most important. Now, speaking of love and speaking of leftism, we're going to get into this story where Abraham just does not learn a goddamn thing. (laughs) You're going to have to be more specific than that. That's true. That's true. Well, dear listener, longtime listener, you will recall uh, that this story sounds pretty familiar. So I'll go ahead and dive on in. Genesis 20. Abraham traveled from there toward the land of the arid southern plain, and he settled as an immigrant in Gerar, between Kadesh and Shur. Abraham said of his wife Sarah, she's my sister. So King Abimelech of Gerar took her into his household. But God appeared to Abimelech that night in a dream and said to him, you are as good as dead because of this woman you have taken. She is a married woman. Now Abimelech hadn't gone near her, and he said, Lord, will you really put an innocent nation to death? Didn't he say to me, she's my sister? And didn't she, even she, say, he's my brother? My intentions were pure, and I acted innocently when I did this. God said to him in the dream, I know that your intentions were pure when you did this. In fact, I kept you from sinning against me. That's why I didn't allow you to touch her. Now return the man's wife. He's the prophet. He will pray for you so that you may live. But if you don't return her, know that you and everyone with you will die. Abimelech got up early in the morning and summoned all of his servants. When he told them everything that had happened, the men were terrified. When Abimelech summoned Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? What sin did I commit against you that you have brought this terrible sin to me and my kingdom by doing to me something that simply isn't done? Abimelech said to Abraham, What were you thinking when you did this thing? Abraham said, I thought to myself, no one reveres God here, and they will kill me to get my wife. She is, truthfully, my sister, my father's daughter, but not my mother's daughter, and she's now my wife. When God led me away from my father's household, I said to her, this is the loyalty I expect from you. In each place we visit, tell them he is my brother. Abimelech took flocks, cattle, male servants, and female servants, and gave them to Abraham. And Abimelech returned his wife Sarah. Abimelech said, My land is here available to you. Live wherever you wish. To Sarah he said, I have given your brother one thousand pieces of silver. It means that neither you nor anyone with you has done anything wrong. Everything has been set right. Abraham prayed to God, and God restored Abimelech, his wife, and his women servants to health, and they were able to have children. Because of the incident with Abraham's wife, Sarah, the Lord had kept all of the women in Abimelech's household from having children. So, This story is enough like the story that happened with Abram and Sarai in Egypt that it has led a lot of scholars to conclude that this was originally one story that came from two different traditions. And the fact that this story goes on to be repeated 
almost word for word, including that Abimelech is the same person <laughs> that it happens to Isaac and his wife, Rebecca, later on in the story. This exact same scenario happens. And so it is odd that this story comes up in three different places that are so similar. A lot of scholars think that this is actually the same story that is told and changed because of the oral retellings in different ways, and that this story just had Abimelech was sometimes the person talked about, and Pharaoh was sometimes the person talked about, and sometimes it was Abraham who did it, and sometimes it was Isaac who did it. But instead of trying to mesh the stories together, like we see in the story of Noah, right, there are two different kinds of approaches to what happens when you have a text like this. In the creation stories, right, we read the first creation story. We saw that that was a unique tradition that was held up by a specific people group that was preserved in the text. And then the second creation story was a different story that had the same sort of themes, but went in a different direction. If you tried to reconcile the two, they would be irreconcilable. And so they were left as separate stories. Now, the story of Noah is similarly two different stories that seem to be slammed into each other. One story where Noah takes two of every kind of animal, and one story where Noah takes seven of all clean kinds of animals. And there are a number of other contradictions in there that that make those two stories seem like they're separate stories that the ancient peoples thought, oh, this can be told as one story. We can combine these stories to make one story. Here, instead of that, it's three independent stories. And we have something to learn from each of these independent stories, and that's why it's given to us, despite it being weird that this seems to happen three times <laughs> throughout uh, the course of Abraham and his son's lives. One of the things I like, is when we explored this on our, on our own series, we, we kind of talked about this a little bit too, is from a strictly literary perspective, you're of course absolutely right. This is clearly uh, one story that's probably been repeated in different ways. But the question that, that I, I like to ask is kind of the same question I ask when I'm presented with the issue of why are there four Gospels? And it's because, quite frankly, there's a lesson that we thought was important when this was being put together that could not be expressed by fusing them into one single story. With the New Testament Gospels, the issue is quite simply we wanted to see Jesus' story from the perspectives of different communities who each had their own valid takes on the gospel message of Jesus Christ. None of them were specifically historically accurate retellings, but they were all specifically important perspectives. In this case, my feel on this is that each of the different stories are telling us the same message from different perspectives. And that message is, quite simply, Father Abraham, he of the many, the many sons, the many sons that Father Abraham had, uh, the poison for Cusco, Cusco's poison, you get how the song works. <laughs> this guy was a dumbass, like profoundly self-centered, fear-driven to the extent that he would find himself perfectly at home in the evangelical church in America. Like this guy <laughs> is all kinds of self-centered screwed up here. And, and this is kind of key to me, he's still perfectly capable of having God step in and build a religion around the guy. Like, he can still be used as a tentpole despite being the maximum level of screwed up as possible from our <laughs> modern perspective. So that's always been my kind of take on it. Like, I, I see these stories as being connected in a literary and historical sense, but I don't think that's really the message that needs to be taken away from it. I know there's, you know, the... Three is the magic number. Like, if there's an important message, it's going to happen like three times, kind of thing. I also think the message of this is that we do the same shit 
over and over <laughs> father and son doesn't matter and like we we do have a habit of like falling back into sin which is why i think this is the moment before the binding of isaac and there's a reason why the binding of isaac is so hard and perhaps it has to do with just how fall Abraham has fallen in this passage, because he doesn't trust God at all. Yeah, there's there's no room for trusting God in this passage, right? And the profound difference between this story and the earlier story with Pharaoh is that this story is is first off, it's it's much longer. It's almost twice as long um, in terms of verses and also in terms of words. It is a lot longer of a passage. The first story is in Genesis 12. It's Genesis 12, 10 through 20, right? And there we see uh, most of the work that's happening there is not really being communicated. Like Abram communicates to Therai that he thinks that this is going to happen. And then the only other line that happens, God doesn't come and talk to Pharaoh. Nothing else happens. It's just Pharaoh saying to Abram, why did you lie to me, basically? And instead of there being communication, Pharaoh only figures it out because there's a huge plague. And that plague is what makes him start looking for uh, a reason that it could be, and he eventually figures out it is because of Sarai. That's God intervening on Sarai's behalf without saying anything. And I think that, Al, you're really on to a profound point here, that here it seems as though uh, in this story, instead we see God coming to Abimelech in a dream, God speaking directly to Abimelech and saying, like, you are as good as dead because of this woman you have taken. And how does that, uh, this hits back on a theme that um, I'm constantly talking about, that in the Old Testament, that as good as dead is equal to not having a progenity, right? Where in verse 19, it's revealed that the Lord kept all the women in Abimelech's household from having children while Sarai was there, because you are as good as dead if you don't have children, basically. This was something like, when you were, when you were doing the original reading of the text and when we were kind of prepping before the episode, Alter's notes on verse 18 in particular struck me because he had a take on this linguistically that blew my mind, absolutely blew my mind, because I was reading this the same way you're re you were reading this, that is, this is a fertility issue. And Alter disagrees uh, he says, let me see, I'm going to read here. Contrary to some textual critics who conjecture that this verse was inadvertently displaced from an early part of the story, it's a lovely piece of delay, yada, yada, yada. Shutting up the womb is a standard idiom for infertility, which ancient Hebrew culture, at least on the proverbial level, attributes to the woman, not the man. But given the earlier reference to Abimelech's having been prevented from touching Sarah, this looks suspiciously like an epidemic of impotence that has struck Abimelech and his people. An idea Ooh. not devoid of comic implications. <laughs> nice. From which the Garrett woman... Yeah. So it wasn't a case of they weren't able to have uh, kids because the women. It was like, nope. Uh, God said, you took a woman you shouldn't have taken, so your dick don't work. <laughs> I mean, that, that makes sense based on, you know, God prevented uh, Abimelech from touching Sarah. That's true. You yeah. know, that... It, <laughs> Bimelech just couldn't get it up. That's why he wasn't able to rape her, you know? And let's yeah. keep in mind that this is the same God who, through Jesus Christ, later said, you know, if, you, if your hand is a problem, cut off your hand. If your eyes are a problem, well, what the hell do you need eyes for? Uh, if you take a woman that you shouldn't have taken, you don't need a dick either. So come on. Like, this is in <laughs> keeping with the God we understand. <laughs> I, I just can't wait to hear the, the retelling the Bible, a version of this story where Scott comes in and is narrating this moment when Abimelech thinks he's going to have sex with a super hot older mom. And uh, he goes in there and just 
can't get it up the whole time. Um, but <laughs> well, I I love the idea that impotence is the the punishment uh, that happens here. That like because this is a story that's all about power, right? It's a story about Abimelech, the king, whose name is my father is king. And yet, you know, he he is somebody who has never had limits on his power, right? He's he is the person that no one has ever told no to. Just another nepo baby. Exactly, just another literally a nepo baby. Like this is the definition of it. It's not that you know I. My dad's the king. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like it might as well be like um, son of Elon, right? Like <laughs> you know that is his name basically. And it's not like Elon did anything to work for his empire, right? Like you can't even. Have have people who are coming along to claim, oh, at least this is the first king. This is the guy that really worked hard to bring together the villages, to, you know, to build this thing. He pulled up his bootstraps and he formed a kingdom. No, it's not even that guy. It's just the lazy bum who was born from his, from that guy's loins. And like, so he deserves to have this kingdom and never be told no. And the only thing that we know about this very generic character is that he fucks up. And well, in, def- in defense of our boy Abe here, <laughs> I, I will say, by the standards of the time, like taking a wife in that way wasn't abnormal and he wasn't a follower of God. So like that kind of a fuck up is, I guess, a fuck up, but kind of like an understandable one. And between this and the later story with with Isaac as well. I'm kind of on team Abimelech didn't really do anything wrong here. And like, particularly when you get to the end of the Isaac story and his whole reaction was like, seriously, just get the fuck out. I'm sick of this stuff. <laughs> like I kind of ride for Abimelech a little bit in these stories. Like I, I kind of get it. Like uh, I still think Abimelech did something wrong. Little, little yeah. some, some called kidnapping. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I'm I, like, th- this is, this is where it gets kind of interesting It's from a modern position. Absolutely. Like, I don't think anybody would argue that from a a standard modern understanding of anybody's autonomy, that anything that Abimelech did here was right. My point is that by the standards of the time, like this was a normal practice for Abimelech and his people and kings in general in the region. So like, okay, like it wasn't great, but it also like, how could he be expected to know differently? Because it hadn't really been brought up for him. I mean, one would hope he would know by now. Yeah, I think that what I want to push back on there is that like one of the central texts that makes me an anarchist is 1 Samuel 8. In 1 Samuel 8, 11 through 18, uh, Samuel is telling the folks, uh, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and to equip his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and the vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his men. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. And a lot of the time when folks are pointing to the the terrible things that King David did, particularly with the kidnapping of Bathsheba, right? It is pointing back to this verse, they will take your female servants and put them to his work. 
And his work is, in this case, to be a sex slave, right? Um, to be to be his wife, who he already has a wife and many people in his household, presumably, who are passing on his genes. And yet, this is one of the horrors that Samuel is describing. So I hear where you're coming from, but I also think that already in that culture, there is reason to think that this sort of behavior is not what you should expect from a good king. Right. I, I'm not offering pushback. I'm actually agreeing with you, to be perfectly honest. Abimelech is more or less a, a monster. But, like, I think my, my only argument is that, like, the greater arc of this has more to do with kind of Abraham screwing Abimelech and less to do with Abimelech being a monster. But that doesn't, like, it, it's a weird perspective because it doesn't necessarily mean that Abimelech's perfect. I'm not arguing for that. I'm not arguing for Abraham's perfect. It's not like a binary situation. I, I tend to think of the verse as a little more weighted to Abraham's fuck up than Abimelech's, but like, all right, fair point. <laughs> Are you saying that the Bible gives us strange moral quandaries where nobody is actually the good guy? What? Um, <laughs> oh sorry. my Lord, the Bible is nuanced. Go figure. Yeah, I, I, I definitely think um, nobody's the good guy in this situation. And I was reading... I can't remember where, but there was some scholars that were uh, suggesting that in Abraham's time, it would have been like if someone was to take your female relative for a wife, they would have like talked to you about it and like made an agreement with you and like set a whole deal up. Whereas in this story, uh, Abimelech just comes and takes Sarah like Mm. gross when being sold with contracts. Gross. But even what this guy did was, like, beyond the standard of the time for that. And, L, that that understanding makes sense of what's weird and happening in verse 16, where, or really 14 through 18, where Abimelech is suddenly paying Abraham back, right? He's essentially giving Abraham the dowry that he should have given him at the beginning, but instead took Sarah instead of working out some sort of deal where at least someone in her family is consenting to the relationship rather than just taking what isn't his to take in the first place. Yeah. And, and that kind of seems to be like, that's the only reason like Abraham gets a reward out of this. Like, and it's not really a reward. It's like, it's trying to make things square, Yeah, but in the sassy way. Yes. <laughs> well, and I, I do want to push back on, on one thing that you said, Al, that there are no good guys in, in this story. And God's I, I, the good guy. God is the only good person, uh, the only good, the only good actor in this story. Um, and I think that this is really important as we're coming off of a set of stories where God's silence has been violence, right? Where God's seeming like hands off of the situation has allowed things to occur that are are really problematic, right? And longtime listeners will remember that Laz in the story where Abraham is pleading over Sodom and Gomorrah that Laz and Pastor Sarah got into um, the closest thing that we've had to a debate on this show <laughs> on, like, what was God's responsibility here? What was God trying to do? Should God have gotten more involved? And I think that in that story, God should have gotten more involved. And it seems like in this story that whereas God was rather passive in the first story that God, you know, sent a plague because it seems like Sarah was was asking God to intervene. Here in this story, God is like, no, 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 no. We're not fucking around at all. Your dick is limp right now. But God appeared to have been like that night. It is specifically like as soon as a boom like does that, that God intervenes and says, oh, no, 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 no. You're not doing any of this shit. 
And I think that that is God taking a more active role in part because God knows, Abraham, you're not trusting me. I need you to trust me. That is, again, going back to your point, Al, that this is about to go into the binding of Isaac, where God says, trust me, Abraham. First off, the the question that I always ask, and, and this is just more or less a general question, if this is in God's wheelhouse, why, in fact, is not the entire evangelical church today making, like, 90s anime and Dragon Balls? Come on! Like, <laughs> let's, get, let's get to this! But that aside, I gotta wonder a little bit about Abraham here, because we're on the second time through this now. And like the the setup, the the brevity of the of the setup in verses like one, two, and three here at the beginning almost suggests to me that unlike the first time where it was more fear driven, this time he's like, okay, I kind of know how this works. Like, and each time, not to be too blunt about it, it turns a profit for him. Mm-hmm. Like he, at the end of each of these incidences of uh, I'm going to accidentally get my wife taken as a sex slave, it always ends with Abraham getting a load of shit for himself. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, we, we talk about Abimelech being a monster, not wrong, but there is a monstrosity that I tend to read in Abraham's behavior as we progress through this, where he's becoming progressively more and more comfortable, it seems, with the idea of, yeah, Go ahead and take my wife. We are, God's on my side, man. I'm going to wind up with all your shit. So, like, it, it almost feels like a guy trying to trap somebody into a lawsuit or something in a weird sort of way, except with way more, uh, like, violations of consent and, you know, good, solid sexual horror involved. And this is something that I think modernly we have to reckon with. And this is this was kind of the crux of what we, we talked about when we talked about it on, on my show was... This is a story where we have a guy who, in my read, quite likely intentionally, does a pretty significantly abhorrible, like absolutely horrendous sexual activity and profits by it. And there is no real, like, mention of that being the issue. Like, he's still allowed to proceed in leadership. He's still allowed to be Father Abraham of the many sons who may or may not be llamas, you know. (laughs) The fact that this is a story where a biblical hero, and I, I hearken back to the Sunday school days where we were taught of, of Abraham, the blameless biblical hero, like, he didn't just make a mistake, like, he committed a, more than a crime here yeah. in what he was doing, and he didn't just get away with it, he prospered for it. And the yeah. lesson I, one of the lessons, many lessons, because again, nuanced text here with a lot of shit going on, one of the lessons I think we can and should take from here is that there are often situations in which the bad guy wins and the bad guy doesn't just win, but is seen as a good guy for a lot of what he, and I say that with the pronoun intentionally, because it usually is, uh, does. Like why, like why does God intervene here in particular in such a direct way? It's because his plan was in motion. Sarah Mm. was pregnant and Isaac's the plan. That's why Sarah's hot. Yeah. (laughs) Like Sarah wouldn't like Sarah's hot because Isaac's on board. The buns in the oven. Abimelech isn't trying to make a political marriage with a ninety-year-old sister of this guy who just showed up to town. He saw a hot lady and wanted to make her his. 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, and like, I think that that is such a good, um, a good way to say that, like, that God appeared. It's really important to uh, the, the authors of the stories that God appeared that night to say, you are as good as dead because of this woman that you have taken. She is a married woman. Like, it, it has to be very clear that Abimelech did not have sex with her because Abimelech is not the father of Isaac, right? Like, that is so important in this story that God has to show up right then and do it, right? I think that, Don, you raise a really good point on the fact that Abraham seems like he's gotten away with it, right? But I think that this is, like, we have to remember the context of the story, right? That Abraham gets all this money in Genesis chapter 12, and then in Genesis 13, the amount of wealth that he has literally divides his family, and he never sees his nephew Lot again. The amount of wealth that he gets seems like it's a blessing, but it leads to the separation and dissolution of his family. And I think that El is right on the money here, where Abraham gets this thing that, that the world would think of as a blessing out of this terrible situation. And what is the first thing that has to happen after that? Right after Isaac is born, God takes him, seemingly because he does not trust God in this scenario, and says, sacrifice your son. And then, right after that story, what happens? Sarah dies. I absolutely hear what you're saying, and I think it is hard for us to wrestle with that if we look at the world from a capitalist perspective that riches are a good thing. But I think if we take the logic of this story and say, riches have divided his family, riches have caused Lot to flee to a city where he was the outcast that Lot had to escape from, that caused the death of Lot's wife, right? That riches caused all these problems for Lot's family, and we see that these riches are causing a problem for Abraham as well. I think consistent problems as we go through these stories, and it requires that we not take the perspective that riches are a good thing to realize what the text is telling us throughout these stories. Yeah, and I think, to, to be clear, I wasn't arguing that riches are a good thing. I mean, I, I would argue no, that they're a good thing from Abraham's <laughs> perspective. Um, yeah. And I see definitely, and, and agree with you, that he spends pretty much the rest of the Abrahamic story going, oh, look, it's the consequences of my own actions. Um, yes. Like, that's, that, is, that is what happens. My only, uh, I'm going to say criticism, although it's kind of directed at God here, so it doesn't feel totally right, but, you know, we'll roll with it. Um, my, my only quote-unquote criticism here is the fact very visceral, very kind of in the moment, very, I'll admit, short-sighted. But like, given everything that Abraham does here, Isaac's already on the way. So why is it that Abimelech is the only one who's struck with a plague of perpetual floppiness? Like, I think Abraham should have gotten some of that too. I think Abraham already had that problem, which is why oh. we, they weren't already pregnant. But that's a fan theory. Um, <laughs> um, don't you think Abraham's punishment is going to be Sarah when she gets back there? Fair point. Like uh, you've already like, done this to me once, you bastard. Like, <laughs> like I just imagine her stomping back into the tent, going again, again. Oh, uh, do you think that Sarah pulled Rebecca aside at some point and said, "Listen, honey, this family, the men are just dicks, floppy <laughs> ones too." Yeah, it's getting the floppy dicks. They're floppy dicks. Um. I wanted to, to express my deepest and most sincere regrets that only Abimelech got struck with impotence because, quite frankly, Abraham deserved it. Oh, he, he was he, he was going to be involuntarily celibate after this. <laughs> so what we're saying is that Abraham is the OG incel? All right. No, we decided Adam was, right? Yeah, Adam was the first. Oh, okay. That's canon. Oh, 
Abraham, no, Abraham is just that's long fair. in the line of incel. So, <laughs> like father, um, like son. It's funny that like th- so much of this story is like trying to save face at a certain point, right? We're like. Abimelech does this terrible thing, and then it's a PR disaster with the most important audience, uh, God. And suddenly, like, Abimelech is like, oh, no, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to do this thing. And then, like, gives Abraham so much money, right? Like, a thousand pieces of silver in this time period would have been a fortune, right? Like, this is not normally what you give as a dowry. How much would you pay to have your dick work again, though? (laughs) You're not wrong. Listen, uh, gender-affirming care most often happens to heterosexual men. Most gender-affirming care is Viagra. Uh, it is hair implants. It is butt jobs. It's. Uh, I didn't know this was a thing until I started hearing about gender-affirming care for heterosexual men. Um, it's ball jobs, uh, where you make your balls <laughs> look hell? less sacky. Yep. Apparently, you stick some Botox in there and make your balls the least attractive thing on any human being. You... Stick Botox into there so that your balls can never smile again. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry, that's that's almost literally polishing a turd. Like you're about an inch and yes. a half away from that anyway. Like, come that's on, exactly, exactly what it is, right? Like, and, and then they get on us trans folks because we like want to dress differently. Like, you know, just you know, the 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 fact that like if you want your kid to be a ballet dancer, that you have to get them to start doing poses that literally change the way that their muscles will form for the rest of their lives. It changes and their bone placement we had a yes there was a girl in my high school like class and she had been doing ballet since she was like little like i stopped doing dance when i was like eight but she she was 16 and still doing ballet and she could stand with her like feet all the way to the side like in a weird bone yeah (laughs) yeah like good good if you love it but like not for me yeah yeah that is like permanent changes to a human's body that you can't even prevent later, you know, by, by, you know, just letting people go on puberty blockers or anything, but God forbid, you know, if, if your child wants to be a dancer and then they later change their mind and can never change that fact about themselves, if a kid goes on puberty blockers, they can just come off of them. And like, that's the most extreme thing. And then they go through puberty with the gender that they were assigned rather than the gender that they thought they were like, you know, the, the consequences of treating a child as they want to be treated, help them live a healthy, fulfilling life or make them want to die, that seems like an obvious choice of which is abuse and which is not abuse. But anyway. To, to gen- be clear, <laughs> to be clear, the, the evangelical perspective on, on trans development is basically, look at this beautiful little brand new infant that I have. She's an adorable little girl. And if she ever tries to turn into a boy, I will absolutely end her because we don't want to change anything about here. Now, where's my piercing gun? I'm going to put holes in her ears. Junk. Yes, exactly. <laughs> oh, like that's yeah. it. That's evangelical theology right there. <laughs> Anything to uphold the current power structure as it exists, right? And like and mm-hmm. that's what Abumalek is doing here, right? Where he first took Sarah because it was within the power structure that he gets what he wants. So he takes the sister of Abraham without paying any sort of dowry. And then only when he realizes how fucked up he's done. He, he fucked around and found out. And uh with God, a God on the other side. And then he pays 
way above asking price uh, <laughs> for uh, to try and make this all right, to try and save face and go, my intentions were pure. I only meant to take this woman and to be my sex slave. I didn't mean to offend you, almighty man. You know, what's so funny is, again, Abimelech is this generic character, right? Like, Abimelech is not a character that develops their own thoughts and feelings, just like Pharaoh. All Pharaohs in the Bible are essentially the same character. If they don't have a different name, the title is the character, right? Abimelech is just the title. It's not an individual character. It's just this it's just this sort of bland character that you see in these court dramas, what they call the royal court dramas in biblical literature. Bum, bum. In the Hebrew justice system, the people are represented by two separate but equally important groups, King Abimelech and, for some reason, Abraham. These are their stories and their limp dicks. Bum, bum. <laughs> I was reading that in the original Hebrew when Abraham was, like, explaining himself. He blamed God and, like... That, that God made him like wander, but the there's like six different words that mean wander, and Abraham picked the one, the worst one that kind of has an, like the most negative impl- like connotations wherever else it's used in the Bible, and the other contexts that this word is in are like animals going astray, drunk men reeling, um, sinful seductions the people going astray because of the prophet's lies. So, like, in the original Hebrew, it definitely seems to, like, cement Abraham as, like, really fucking up here, and he's blaming God about it. And that's why it's so interesting that the Binding of Isaac is next. Because, uh, yeah. you know, it's it seems, if, if you take these stories and just, like, the little chapter chunks that they're in, it seems like Abraham's getting away with it. But I, I think this adds a lot more flavor to the binding of Isaac because he does not. And this all puts God and Abraham's friendship to the test. And then God's going to be like, oh, you think we're, we're going to have a real test soon. I'm going to throw this out from, from Alter's notes because he looks at the whole... I'm going to read the the passage here. And it happened when the gods made me a wanderer from my father's house that I told her, yada, yada, yada. That's where we're looking at. He focuses on the way Elohim is used here and not on the word that's used for wanderer. And I... He, he draws a very interesting point here uh, that the word, and I'm going to read from Alter's notes here, the word Elohim, which normally takes a singular verb, though it has a plural suffix when it refers to God, as everywhere else in this episode, is here linked with a plural verb. Conventional translation procedure renders this as God, or sometimes heaven, but Abraham, after all, is dressing a pagan who knows nothing of the strange idea of monotheism, so he's chosen his words accordingly to not necessarily refer to God as his God, but in a much more general and weird sense. So he's not even, basically the short of it is, he ain't even talking about God right in this sentence here. Like He's not even like claiming God. Like, yeah, he's not even claiming God, yeah. He's ooh, a, kind of like... Ooh, no wonder I've, the binding of Isaac ha- ooh, ooh, I get it now. Ooh. Right? Ooh. Right? Like, ooh. There, there's a lot, like, the Hebrew's got a lot of, there's one of the things I love about Hebrew is that 
it has, whereas English, the garbage fire language that it is, only has subtlety when it comes to word choice. Hebrew's subtlety is almost entirely within cross-textual interactions, like what verb, what this verb is paired with uh, adjectivally, like whether they're both plural or singular, uh, what mode is this one operating and stuff like that. That's where you get a lot of the nuance in Hebrew. And none of that reflects in English because, again, garbage dumpster fire of a language here. Like, I I will never stop talking about how terrible of a functional language English is. I absolutely hate it, and it's my native language. Anyway, <laughs> uh, but yeah, like, we don't get that kind of nuance carried over, and yeah, uh, Abraham is kind of like giving God the middle finger here a little bit. Well, and the Rabbi Shrono, uh, he translates this as not when God made me wander, but on account of the various alien gods, which I despise. I have been forced to leave my father's house. And so, like, it, it's to that point, like, it's not even talking about God. Yeah, it's here. driving from that. Yeah, exactly. It's it's all those other gods that caused me to leave. Super interesting. Yeah, because a, a fair read of that could be that I have this destiny of wandering thrust upon me, but it wasn't my God who did it, it was yours. Yeah. <laughs> like, 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 you could almost read an aggression into that, which, you know, given the the kind of situation that they're in, I, I kind of could see happening. Yeah, and, and this word, um, as, I'm, as I'm reading through a couple of different commentaries on this word, um, several people notice, note that, like, this is that kind of word that you were just talking about, Al, where it's like the wandering is like I have been forced to wander the way that drunk people wander around when they're when they're wasted, right? Or that animals are, are forced to leave from a place. But that like it's it's sort of a it's a pointless wandering, like it's not with the destination, which like again, maybe he doesn't know that Sarah is pregnant right now. Maybe he's at this point where he's like, I don't trust God because like God just is making me wander around here, and Abraham doesn't quite realize what God has just done for him. The commentary by Radek, who is, again, one of these people who writes commentaries on the Torah and is often used in modern Jewish scholarship, writes that the word is closely related to or very similar to exiled. And so Abraham is here talking about the way that he feels exiled from his homeland. And it does seem like it is a, I'm angry at God that I'm not where I was originally and that I am in this strange foreign place of Gerat instead of back home where I belong. It's nice that Abraham is a, an interesting character and not just some boring guy. He's got a story arc, and uh, <laughs> him, him and his friendship with God is a lot richer and more interesting than I first thought. Mm, yes, absolutely. And, Al, the thing that you are constantly reminding me of is that my own relationship with God is far more interesting than I like to think it is. And <laughs> that Abraham's story very much so reflects my own of ups and downs and uh, times when I have done things that are, are not things that I think would make God happy or trust God very well. And so as much as I like to hate on Abraham, that my own story as an Abraham is something worth talking about and considering as well. The thing that I like the most about this story is that we don't have to wonder about when God is showing up, that God immediately shows up on the side of the oppressed person. I feel like God's not, not, ex God's not there for Sarah. You know, God's there for the plan. I think, I think, I think that that's a little bit more, um, but in terms of like process theology, God isn't like, he, this is his first friendship and it is going so wonky right now. 
he's so stressed. Like he made this promise. He's put it into action. Abraham's like, she's my sister. Uh, <laughs> and God's always on the side of the oppressed. The, 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 I, oh, oof, this story. <laughs> well, and God, God's here for God right now. Like, and he's going through it. Well, his best friend just denied him. <laughs> that's true. That's true. This is a common theme in God's life, though. Um, <laughs> so, um, I, I absolutely hear where you're coming from there. And like, yes, but I also want to say that like, this is the plan, but it's the plan to save everyone, right? Like it, it's the plan so that nobody gets left out. But I do think that like, if we're thinking about God in terms of like in process, that God has figured out, oh, this did not go well last time. I'm going to intervene here and make sure that this doesn't happen again. And I do think that it is specifically that God chooses to enter intervene and chooses to have this plan through someone that God is intervening on behalf of. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think it is that the God is showing up here and saying like, Sarah, you have not been the greatest person to Hagar, right? You've mm -hmm. not been the greatest person in these situations. But you and don't deserve this. <laughs> you don't deserve this. Exactly. And like that God intervenes here in this story to say, no, I'm putting my foot down. This is too much despite making Sarah so fucking sexy, uh, apparently, that she is irresistible to everyone around her. Um, <laughs> she just had that je ne sais quoi of a yeah. divine birth written around. <laughs> I think that as I'm coming away from this story, the biggest takeaway that I'm coming back to is, again, Abimelech is here acting like a billionaire, an entitled billionaire that no one has ever said no to. And so he decides that he's going to build a submarine, despite not knowing how to, and then uh, take his buddies down with him for $250 bajillion a pop. And then uh, it goes pop, you know. By the time this episode comes out, that reference is going to be so dated. I don't know if anyone's going to know that I'm talking about the Titan. But... <laughs> You know, this this is a billionaire who's never been told no, right? And God intervening is what finally makes him realize, oh, I don't get to do whatever I want. And Abraham is sitting here with a lot of feelings and still isn't sure that he can trust God. And despite God, for the first time, saying Abraham is a prophet, Abraham doesn't seem quite able to believe that and live into his identity as who God has called him to be. And I think that that is something that we need to be thinking about, is what is our identity as leftists, as people of faith, um, however you identify, what is our identity that we need to be living into to a greater degree so that we can trust that the better world that we're all seeking to build is the one that is coming and we get to be a part of that. So thank you again, Don and Elle. It is wonderful as always to be with you. Uh, dear listener, if you did not catch Don's or Elle's or my pluggables, they are all available in our link tree below. It might be a little bit complicated to get to, but you go to the bottom and you click on that button. Uh, and then while you're there, did you know that you could go and review us for five stars? I don't know what that does, but apparently it does a thing. And um, I would really like our podcast to be above Dave Ramsey's podcast on the religion uh, uh, lists. So please go and do that. I'd really appreciate it. Um, do it for mine too while you're there. Yeah, yeah. Go, go and rate Don's, <laughs> Don's as well. Thank y'all again for being a part of this podcast. We so appreciate you. Pass Micah, take it away. Thank you, future Micah. And of course, you, our wonderful listener. 
Together, we have made a wonderful and growing community on Discord that I look forward to being a part of every day. Your generous support on Patreon has already greatly increased the quality of our podcast, including this very outro. As an extra little thank you, you can get episodes early along with a bunch of other cool perks. Please follow the link in the show notes to join our Discord, Patreon, and all of the other things mentioned throughout this episode. If you would like to reach me directly, you can reach me through the Discord or by email at thewordinblackandred at gmail.com. Now, future Micah, say the profound shit. And thank you, past Micah. Now go. In the faith that despite what might be happening now, the God is intervening and is using us to intervene, to carry out the plan. The plan not just of the salvation of one or two of us, but for everyone. Shalom. Now go and pray for the impotence of all billionaires.